Good morning. How is everyone? I'm good too. Thanks for asking. Actually, um, if you look at my hand right here, you'll see I'm a little nervous. <laughs> um, right now would probably be the perfect time to challenge me in a game of operation because I bet I would make that buzzer go off on every turn. So, Have you ever heard the phrase, this ain't my first rodeo? I didn't realize I'm supposed to be proficient at something by the time it's my second rodeo. Um, it seems like an awfully low number of rodeos, you know, before you're, you're an expert at something. And rodeoing is dangerous, too. You know, I could easily see this ain't my first rodeo being famous last words of someone who died at their second rodeo. So. <laughs> All that is to say, um, this is my first time preaching. So um, I am a little nervous, but it's exciting to be here. And um, I'm 39 now, and if you take one data point as a trend, I'll be 78 before I'm up here again. So uh, maybe at that point, I, I actually will be an expert at this. So um, as Jim mentioned, uh, my name is Justin Evelsizer, and my wife and I uh, moved to West Philly in 2007 and uh, joined this church 11, 11 years ago. And when I look back and think I've been in one place for 11 years, that's quite remarkable for me. Um, to put it in perspective, um, here's a carefully framed fact about me. I went to different schools for kindergarten, first, second, third, fifth, sixth, uh, eighth, ninth, eleventh, and twelfth grades. And I've been enrolled at four different colleges, and I went to two different preschools. So um, it's a carefully framed fact, but um, I've moved, I moved around a fair amount as a kid. And so when I look back at the decisions that my wife and I made, you know, to come to West Philadelphia and decide to put down roots. Um, I think about a passage from James chapter 4, and I want to start off this morning's talk by, by reading that. Um, the words are going to be in your bulletin, and they'll be projected behind me on the screen here. So, James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why? You do not even know what's going to happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this and that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good that they ought to do and doesn't do it, to him it is a sin. So, Father, it's uh, my prayer this morning that I not be an obstacle to your truth, that you would uh, speak to those that are listening here today, and that what I bring is not a hindrance um, to what you want to lay on their hearts. Amen. So of all the books of the New Testament, James is my, one of my favorites, if not my outright favorite. I've read it more than any other book of the Bible, and I even set out a goal of memorizing it uh, back when I was in, in high school. I didn't quite finish the goal, but I got pretty far, enough to win a bar bet here or there, true story. Um, and I picked James as the book that I wanted to memorize because it's kind of like Proverbs, the sequel, you know. Uh, it's this smorgasbord of wisdom, and being written after Jesus, it kind of has this narrative between the lines that's woven throughout it. And so I really like, you know, how it, how it comes together. It ties it all together. And so my thought at the time was, if, if my goal of scripture memory is to have you know, some, some of the Word of God right here at my fingertips and be able to access it, you know, to access it at a time, you know, where it might have been hard to have the real, real physical version there, then that seemed like a good book to have, you know. Um, this decision was before the Internet, 
And so the idea that uh, some sort of device would exist in another dozen years where I could access every single word and all the commentary in a searchable format, you know, right there on, on my person at all times, was not the future that I was envisioning when I set out that goal. Um, I was thinking maybe a little more of a Mad Max, the apocalyptic future. So, um, anyways, I digress. So, looking back at my own life, uh, the recent past and the current decisions I'm making, it's a great book for staying grounded day to day, as well as things to consider when planning for the future. So, the first takeaway that I have from this passage is basically that James is essentially saying it's foolish to go through life making big decisions without the constant awareness of God's hands in our lives. I'll read a little bit again. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. James was against the kind of mindset of making plans in a very self-centered vacuum. Let's look at the grammar of the first quote. We will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. It's written in the indicative mood. Now, my English coursework in school was limited to the bare minimum of what was required of me, so I had to remind myself what that means exactly. And so basically, you've got the imperative mood, which is a command or a request, for the last time, stop jumping on the couch and do your homework. Now, you know, that's imperative. <sighs> Please eat your broccoli. That's also imperative. Um, then there's the subjunctive mood, which conveys a wish or a doubt. <sighs> I would prefer not coming back upstairs three times to tech you in. Or if I were you, I would give that back to your sister, you know. Or, I suggest you wear a matching pair of shoes instead of a left slipper and a left rain boot. So, conversely, writing in the indicative mood is basically stating things as facts. Your brother does not have booger brains. All right, so back to the phrase at hand. We will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. It's all future tense, spoken as a fact or as if it had already taken place. And what's the subject? Me, me, me take myself to this place. Why? So I can make money. So contrast that with James's alternative. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. I like that in both versions, the this or that is wording is still present. And for that reason, I don't think James is saying that planning in and of itself is a bad thing. I certainly hope not. My first career, that was in my job title, city planner. And my second career, again, it's in my field, uh, consulting for supply chain planning. Planning is it's what I do, it's much of who I am. And much of my life is akin to a game of chess. You know, how people talk about a good chess player saying, you know, we, we might look one or two moves ahead, but she looks seven or eight moves ahead. That's, that's how I take so much of my approach to life, you know? Um, whether it's deciding the optimal order of rides when I'm taking a friend to an amusement park for the first time, or when I'm planning the wedding for Emily and I, and I had to think about the order of songs that we we're going to do and how many slow songs to do in a row before doing a fast song, while taking into account you know, our music tastes and our friends' you know, desire to dance and our families, you know, just putting it all together, I relish it. That's, that's what I do. I love to plan. That's why I love Euro-style board games so much. So I'm looking at James, including this or that on both sides, and both the good and the bad example, and I don't think the message is you have to have to live a life unplanned. 
Moreover, look at the focus between the first and the second viewpoints. The first is completely absence of the presence of God. Me, me, me. Carry on business, focus on my career, make money, my timetable. And the second version still has that planning, but it's cognizant of this idea that God can nudge us or change things up along the way if it's the Lord's will. So Paul frequently used that kind of language in his letters to the different early churches. In Acts chapter 18, I will return again to you, God willing. In 1 Corinthians 4.19, but I will come to you shortly if the Lord wills it. And again later in the same letter, I hope to stay a while with you if the Lord permits. I know language and word choice is always evolving. Some of those phrases sound a little Victorian to my own ears. And like if I say, now you're on the trolley, you might look at me a little funny, like I'm streets behind. I know all of you are streets ahead, or is that reference a little too out of date now already? I visited a church a time or two that very much oddly uses those sorts of phrases, like if the Lord wills it. And I recognize for a lot of us it's more internalized or the vernacular is updated for 2019. The point is, the key ingredient is the recognition that God is alive and active, and therefore baking that assumption into our planning is what James is going after. You know, one of the problems with the indicative mood when talking about the future is that it can really hamstring you. If I say I'm going to do this specific thing, it can be really underwhelming if I was capable of doing so much more. Uh, one quick example, last year I set out a lofty New Year's resolution goal, and I kept it. I had a goal to do a specific number of push-ups um, for the year. And so two months into 2018, my muscles were starting to get stronger, I was starting to adapt, my endurance was going up. And basically, I was able to do so much more. The daily quota that I needed to do to maintain my goal was, you know, was kind of pedestrian. But I held firm to my goal rather than adapt to where to my increasing abilities and wound up what wound up happening is I took a few months off where I did zero, <laughs> zero push-ups. And then I barely crossed the finish line. In fact, I hit my goal at 7.30 p.m. on December 31st. So <laughs> if I had been attentive to the situation, I could have achieved so much more. I could have blown past my original goal. And so similarly, if it's the Lord's will, is like if I had been receptive to that increased conditioning and strength, that sort of situational awareness of God's presence in your life, and your interactions with those around you is that ability to listen and adapt and respond to those nudges. There can be so much more, and you can keep from being limited by your own stating as fact the things that are in the future, which are truly unknown. In my own life, I had everything planned out. Emily and I would move to Philadelphia. I'd get my master's degree in public administration. We'd enjoy the city for two years, and then I'd be on my way to becoming a city manager, et cetera, et cetera, me, me, me. My career, my pride, and my own personal accomplishments and educational attainment for the prestigious job. One word that really stood out to me while reading this passage recently was boasting. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. I looked up the Greek, and I discovered the original word used here for boasting, alauzonia, is used only one other time in the Bible, 1 John 2.16. And there, apart from the NASB translation, and I checked 38 translations in total, it almost always appears in some form of, some, some form of pride in one's own possessions. So this word, alazonia, appears twice in the Bible, and for the most part, it's only translated as boasting in one of those two instances. So that got me even more interested. And I did this deep dive, and I found myself reading a little bit about Plato, and then Aristotle, and finally Shakespeare. And 
talk to me later, I'll let you know how Shakespeare fits into the whole thing. So, What I ultimately learned from all this was basically that in first century life, in this part of the world, the word for, this word for boasting was associated with what we nowadays call a snake oil salesman. To the audience at the time, what James was saying is that any attempt to proclaim your plans in the future without taking the will of God into, into account is like a snake oil salesman trying to convince an audience that their potion will be the element for their needs, that your little tonic would rid them of whooping cough. You, know? you can't make these sorts of promises. You can't guarantee it. Your assertions are empty. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. I think James knows it is far easier to think about and talk about humility and dependence on God than it is to live fit. Oh, here's a societal problem. I know, I'll put up a temporary profile picture in solidarity with, with said cause. You know, look, James was written in a time that mirrors a lot of what's going on today, what we're experiencing here. The churches along the eastern edge of the Mediterranean and Mesopotamia and Turkey were experiencing social injustice and poverty. There was rife, uh, life was rife with political corruption, and this was a huge topic at this point in the first century. If you read the entirety of James, he basically refers continuously to orphans and widows, you know, people under, under duress, the poor being dragged into court by the rich, and their powerlessness, right? In, in short, the downtrodden. Today, we might call them outcasts, or the less thans, or the marginalized. He was very adamant about being practical. Religion that is pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. In today's context, that might mean that homeless person that you always pass you know, on your way to the Market Frankfurt line, or that neighbor trying to raise his two kids while holding down two jobs. James would probably want more than a temporary profile picture. He would advocate for some pragmatic action. As he said, take care of those orphans and widows. Now, short passages like these often carry a sense of guilt, and I don't want to convey any guilt here. And I don't think James wanted to push a feeling of guilt either. At the time this book was written, the word sin itself was a term borrowed from archery. Did you know in the context of archery what sin means? Basically anything but a bullseye. Or, if you put it another way, missing the mark. You basically, you had this brave guy who would sit down near the targets, and after the archer would fire the shot, you know, he'd come around and look, and if the arrow wasn't completely in the bullseye, he would turn and yell out, sin, to let the archer know, you know, it wasn't a bullseye. And when I read verse 17 in light of that, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it's missing the mark for them. To me, that guilt is replaced and a sense of earnest pursuit of perfection takes its place. Now, I've not shot an arrow since the summer of fourth grade, and, but thanks to Philly hipsters, I have gone axe throwing a couple of times. <laughs> Has anyone else done it? It's hard, right? Um, but that feeling when you hit that bullseye is so sweet. I read this passage in light of that, and I think about how sweet the feeling of life when you're able to sense God's presence, recognize an opportunity to take action, and do something good in the world. And that feeling when you hit that bullseye and things work out better than, better than you expected. When I lived in Cincinnati, there was this dry cleaner down the street from where I lived. And inside, an 85-year-old woman named Eileen ran the business. Truth be told, it wasn't much of a business because she'd reached the point in her life where she really didn't need to work. But she wanted to keep the business running for the sake of the neighborhood. And so she kept the place open even though she ran it at a loss. 
Well, her health, it was deteriorating. She needed to be in a wheelchair while she was in the store, and some fraternity friends and I got word of her situation. And for the rest of the time that we lived at that house, three of us would take turns meeting her every morning in the parking lot, helping her get from the car into the store and setting up shop. And then again in the afternoon, getting her back into the car so that, that she could go home. She was doing it for the neighborhood, and we were able to help her do it. And it was a blessing to the community to be able to have that business remain in the neighborhood open, uh, especially for those that didn't have cars. What an awesome way to live and be able to share the love of Jesus in your life. So what does this look like? Now, how do we get there to consistently hitting the bullseye and having God's presence in our, de- in our decisions where we can be ready to react and serve? I think we need a shovel-ready mentality. We need to be ready to react to the situation around us so that we can respond to the injustice we see in the lives of those around us. I've heard people in this church talk about leaving wide margins, and I really love that concept. For some, that can mean ensuring they have free time to respond to the Holy Spirit. For others, that might mean having emotional capacity for others or money to help out. Whatever your strength, it means to leave some room to apply that strength wherever the situation arises. My dad created a program at his church many years ago. He called it koinonia, based on the idea of sharing in common. The idea, and this was before the internet as we know it today existed, was to create this master list of skills and ways that members of the church could give of themselves. And for some, it was simply acknowledging that, yes, you did in fact have that half-ton pickup truck that could be used. For others, it was a way to pass along clothes, things that they didn't need anymore, to others that could find use out of them. For many, it was a willingness to cook a meal for a family that might have been grieving or celebrating a new baby. And it was really cool at the time, and today I see a lot of these ideas manifest in our care team, our meal trains, our Facebook group where people offer up things that they don't need anymore. And I love this level of practicality because this can play out on a small scale or a large scale. At a small scale, it's in our daily interactions. But on a large scale, there's opportunity as well to listen and respond. So I've got a question for you. The Hollywood and the U.S. military. As different as these two institutions might be, there's a phrase that they both share in common. Any ideas what that phrase might be? Hurry up and wait. If you're on a movie set, whether it's crew or catering, rigging, PA, it's always hurry up and wait. Get to your mark and then wait for further instructions. And it makes sense. I mean, everything revolves around the choices that the director is making as he or she orchestrates a crew that could easily number into the hundreds. The director has a very specific vision, you know, of how this scene needs to play out. In order to create that movie magic, everyone needs to be in concert doing their thing together, right? And that requires people to hit their cue, and so you need to hurry up and wait. So you're prepared and ready to react to the director when the director needs it. Same idea exists in the military. Coordinating tens of thousands of personnel is a very complex task, and it has to run through a chain of command. And for that chain to work, each piece of the link has to be ready to react from the generals on down, the corps, division, brigade, regiment, battalion, company, unit, soldier. Each one has to do its bill, has to do, <laughs> each one ready to do its duty, but it can't unless it's in position, ready, so hurry up and wait. And so our lives can have that same sort of preparation. If you think of God like a movie director or a general with a vision of how they want a scene to play out or how to reach their objectives, its success is going to hinge on our ability to be in the right place at the right time. 
Hurry up and wait. Think of a Rube Goldberg device. You know, those overly complicated little contraptions like that board game mousetrap, where you got the ball that zigs down, zigzags down the chute, hits a series of dominoes that topple over, spring launches a hammer that, you get the idea, right? Um, sometimes you're waiting on the movement of another part or another participant to complete their part of the big picture before it's your turn. It's important to remember that waiting is not a time when God is not at work or when we're being useless. It's a time when we're standing ready for that exact role that we play. It also takes pressure off of that that we might feel if it, if it relied upon us from beginning to end. Sometimes that's how we feel about God's will or serving God, that it's all, help, it's, it's all up to us. And in reality, we are interconnected, and God is orchestrating all the moving parts. It's in retrospect, we see it and we're amazed, when in the present it might only feel like being idle. There's another phrase I'm reminded of that I wanted to share. It's a quote from Gretchen Rubin. The days are long, but the years are short. In its original context, that quote is centered around the toils of early parenthood, dealing with toddler tantrums, regressing while trying to potty train, dried oatmeal that's smeared on your pants that you haven't changed in three days. Many of you can relate to just how long the days can be when they start with crying before 4 a.m., those memories are still reasonably fresh for myself, and yet my oldest is knocking halfway to the point of 16, or one-third of what I suspect will be a fully independent 24-year-old. I'm starting to realize and appreciate the second half of that quote about how short the years really are. And this excerpt from James basically says the whole quote in reverse. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. And then in verse 17, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Doesn't that seem like Reuben's quote, but with the order of the two phrases reversed? The years are short, but the days are long. I want to challenge you to pick a day from this week and reflect on it for a moment about the opportunities that were there where God might have been nudging you to do something specific. An interaction with someone on SEPTA, an email or a phone call with a friend or a colleague, an approach or to how you related to your child, a reaction to a client or customer request, so many different opportunities in a day. The days are, are long. If your attitude in life is to remain aware of the influence of God in the things around you, I think you may find that there's more opportunities to follow our church's mission statement, make our great city even better by joining in Jesus' ongoing work in our world so that people might have spiritually connected, purpose-filled, and satisfying lives. In my own life, there's been a big reshuffling of my priorities. The community Emily and I founded in this church led us to prayerfully consider putting down roots here in West Philly. The people we met gave us reason not to just see Philly as some sort of trampoline from jumping from one part of life into the next. I graduated during the lowest point of the recession, and generalizing in a master's degree while others were you know, specializing in theirs makes it hard to find a job in a seller's market. There was 10 times that I was told I was their second choice, that they were going to go with the one that had specialized in their experience instead. So Emily and I prayed, and we felt God wanted us to stay in Philadelphia. And as Jim mentioned, I started a company. <laughs> At this time, Emily was pregnant with child number one. And then one day, the company went viral on a smaller scale than today's internet viral. And I got an email from an angel investor in Silicon Valley. He wanted to fund the company 
so that it could aggressively grow. Wow, what a way to feed my ego. Silicon Valley calling me, offering funding for a small equity stake in, in the company. I prayed about the situation, and I felt nothing towards what could be considered this dream job. It's hard to describe. If you look back um, at how I was you know, in the time leading up to asking Emily to marry me, um, I prayed to God to see if that's what he wanted in my life. And when I sat down to pray, before I could finish my prayer, I just felt this complete calmness just pour over me, and everything else just began to fade away. And I interpreted that as God saying, you know, yes, about whether I should ask Emily to marry me. This time, I prayed about this job opportunity, right? And so leading up to the prayer, I had that same sort of feeling. You know, I loved Emily very much before I began that prayer, and I knew that's what I wanted. And in the same way, when you start a company, you love it too. You, you have to, or you're going to quit. And I, I prayed about it, and there was just this, just this emptiness. And it didn't feel like that's where God wanted me to go. It was difficult. But it was a completely different feeling than when I prayed about marrying Emily. And I passed on the offer. And so shortly thereafter, that startup experience you know, parlayed itself into a local job in supply chain consulting, which quite the lateral move from city planner, city manager route. This wasn't my dream. You know, I prayed about it, and I got that same sense of calmness that I got in years before. So I took that job. Now, the new job still gave me a plan. I was learning cutting-edge technology, and I knew I could take that back into government consulting work, you know, a chance to be back in the public sphere and using my ideas to improve society. Supply chain consulting would be a temporary thing, you know, until I was ready to make the switch. And during this time, people came into my life from all different walks, coworkers, church members, neighbors, and especially uh, my kids, plural now at this point. Supply chain work went well, and I was given the flexibility to be heavily involved in my kids' lives. And church, and those I made time for purposeful, meaningful connections with. And then another dream opportunity, round two, came along. A chance to move into consulting work in the public sphere. Again, all my years of college, my passion, my career ambitions were back on the table again. Something had happened during those years, however, and my priorities had changed during this time. The dream job was all about me, me, me. You know, I looked at where my classmates were that I'd gone to school with. I saw the titles that were on their business cards. Those that worked in the public sector, I could look up their salaries directly. Um, some of them have Wikipedia pages now. You know, I saw where they were, and this dream opportunity would put me right back on track with all my peers. It would make me look good. And the pay, pay increase probably would have been a significant. I talked to Emily about it, and I prayed once again. I laid my plans before God, and I tried to listen quietly. And I felt that God was reminding me of everything that I'd have to give up in order to take that job. This time I have to pour into my kids, the quality of the relationships of those I have around me, opportunities to serve in various ministries here in this church, as well as other non-religious organizations. What I feel that God has been showing me is that the relationships around me and my opportunities to serve are where my satisfaction and worth are, would actually come from. It's been a bit of a hit to my ego, as from a worldly view, it might look like I'm not reaching my career ambitions, and so much of a man's worth is often defined solely through that prism. What about my plans to be important? But the reality is I've been so content these years, and I see the fulfillment during the times that I'm trying to listen to God, 
and be aware of his presence. It's like, I'll look back when all this is over, and I'll say, you know, it's not the journey, it's the people you met along the way, right? I've still got a lot more growing to do to really understand what it means to be shovel-ready in the tiny spaces, to be able to react to the nudges from God about the smaller interactions, being able to take a break from the routine on a daily basis when there's an immediate need around me so that I can do something to address it. There are places where I'm not leaving wide margins where I could, but in an earnest pursuit of perfection, to try and hit that bullseye, keeping wide margins in my daily interactions so I can respond to the orphans and widows in their distress is where I'm trying to meet Jesus. The satisfaction and fulfillment I was looking for in my career is giving way to the interactions I have teaching and sharing with my kids, helping a coworker, being involved with my community. I don't know where I'm going to be in five years, but I hope to have space at the margins to make every day between now and then a day where I can join in Jesus' on, ongoing effort so that all people can have spiritually connected, purpose-filled, and satisfying lives. Thank you.